0: So Acts chapter 2, uh, we are in our study in Acts. If you're new, this is what we do at the Parks Church. We preach through books of the Bible, and uh, you have found us at the beginning of our study in Acts. And so um, we're going to we're going to cover a, a, a pretty significant passage today in terms of like its size and its, its scope. So we're going to uh, read a little, talk a little, read a little, talk a little, okay? And so we'll start in verse 12 to pick up a little bit of context, and we're going to make it all the way, Lord willing, through verse 41, um, which may or may not be a record for me. Um, if you were with us last week as we started Acts chapter 2, um, you know that we began by looking at this. Incredible moment in the life of the church, this pivotal moment, really the beginning of the church, right? The Holy Spirit falls in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through what we preached through, where, where it was this incredible scene of, of 120 gathered in the upper room. The Holy Spirit comes, they're praying, they're seeking, they're asking uh, God for the Holy Spirit because that's what He told them to do. And then what happens? This mighty rushing wind comes in, and then these tongues of fire, right? The presence of the Holy Spirit falls on these people. And and, and you'll see that if you look in the text, they begin to speak other languages, right? What's called tongues. They begin to speak in, in, in a language which the word is dialecto. They begin to speak in dialects that are not their own. And and that's confirmed by people who are standing around them, because if you remember, this is during the festival of Pentecost, this feast where there would have been thousands and thousands of people in Jerusalem, right, to celebrate this feast of of Pentecost. They were peering in, and they were going, wait a minute, I know that person doesn't speak my language, and they're speaking my dialect or my language perfectly. And so we walked through this passage and listened to the message online, but we we talked about how in Acts chapter 2, these were known languages, that these tongues, they were, they were known languages to the people around them. And so then it had to be this case, right, as we go into this, this next scene, which, by the way, is the same day, right? Don't, don't think just because we broke it last week that there was a week in between them, all right? This is like the same continuous moment, all right? We have one of the, the 120, Peter, the leader of the apostles, step up here in Acts chapter 2, uh, verse 14, and he preaches, and he clarifies because, listen, Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 13 is a very confusing scene. Like oftentimes we read Acts, we go through these biblical passages, and we just are kind of familiar with them enough. And, and we don't really understand that in that season, in that particular time, it was probably so confusing. Maybe even a little bit chaotic where these tongues are going off and people are going away. He doesn't or she doesn't speak my language yet. They're speaking my language. What is going on? And I want you to notice that the clarity to what's happening at the beginning of Acts chapter 2 comes from a sermon, comes from Peter's teaching, all right? And so let's pick it up a few verses, beginning in verse 12. It says this, based upon that scene that I just described, and all were amazed and perplexed saying to one another what does this mean right what does it mean that the holy spirit has just fallen but verse 13 others were mocking said they are filled with new wine all right so let's just be honest what they're actually saying there Right? You have two groups of people. You have people who literally believe something supernatural, something amazing is happening. They're perplexed. They're amazed. They're kind of in wonder, going, what does this mean? What is taking place? Then you have another group. And this is the group of the cynics. These are the group of people, it says in Acts chapter 2, that are mocking. And you always have these two groups. Even in in this room, in the 9 a.m. and in the 1045, you will have those same type of, of, of people. You will have those who are utterly amazed by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. You will have those who are, are just blown away by the greatness of our God and his glory. And then you will have on the other side people who will mock that. right? And, and, and maybe not outright, not scoffing and, and laughing, maybe internally you are. But maybe mocking the power in the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ by not taking it seriously. Mocking it by continuing in disobedience when you hear the call of God, when you see the grace and mercy of Jesus for you. You mock it in that way. There are always these two groups of people. And the people who are mocking here in Acts chapter 2, they mock it verbally. They go, man, these fo- folks must be full of the new wine, right? What they're saying is, they must be drunk, y'all, right? That's Texas, all right? All right? I saw some of you at the OU Texas game, all right? Like, listen, they're full of that new wine mocking. Look what Peter does. Verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Pause right there. We're going to go quicker, I promise. But Peter, remember the scene prior to Jesus' crucifixion. Peter, this same guy, warming his hands at a distance, watching his Savior get taken away by soldiers. A 14-year-old girl comes up to him and goes, hey, wait a minute. I recognize you. Weren't you with him? Weren't you with that guy? I saw you. I know you. And what does Peter do? He denies, denies, denies. He curses Jesus. That Peter, right? That man who was full of such inward conflict, and there we say cowardice, now stands up in front of thousands and thousands of people. You say, how do you know that? Because the end of chapter 2. Thousands of people and declares and preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's the difference between Peter then and Peter now? Right? We're in the book of Acts. This shouldn't be a hard answer, right? The difference is the power of the Holy Spirit alive in Peter's life. Throughout the whole book of Acts, you're going to see a change in Peter, right? Right? There is now this boldness and this courage that only comes from the power of the Holy Spirit. And here's Peter's sermon, right? And by the way, like, preaching a sermon over a sermon, right? It's kind of like cooking while watching a cooking show and critiquing it, okay? So I get it, but let's listen to this sermon. Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem... Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. And so Peter begins his sermon right by hitting kind of those people who are mocking, kind of maybe even to somewhat, they're bringing a rational argument. They're bringing, going, listen, are these people drunk? Like, did we just peer into the upper room and these people are speaking in these other lengths because they did have too much wine? And Peter goes, no way. And his argument is because it's only 9 a.m. Peter gives us a definite time of when this took place, 9 a.m. on the day of Pentecost. Now, 9 a.m. and being drunk in my hometown, like, not that hard to believe, right? I'm from central Missouri, okay? But here in Jerusalem, here at the day of Pentecost, it would have been something highly unlikely. It would have been something that would have been absolutely out of the norm, and that's why Peter's bringing it up. He's going, listen, the first prayers on the day of Pentecost happen at 9 a.m. Most Jews didn't even eat prior to those prayers being done. So he's going, listen, there's no way they've drunk the new wine, right? It's far too early for them to be drunk, so there's something else going on. There's something else taking place, and Peter moves quickly from this rational, right? They're not drunk, it's only 9 a.m., let's think about this, to what? To the Bible. Look at it. He says in verse 16, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel in the book of Joel in your Bible. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs on earth below, blood and fire and vapors of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved right pause right there so immediately here's what i want you to see peter in his sermon talks and addresses those who are cynical those who are mocking go they must be drunk where then does he immediately turn after that to the bible to the scriptures to interpret a very confusing moment right acts chapter 2 even for us today is a non-normative confusing moment where do we turn where do you turn in the moments where life are confusing is confusing right Most of us, let's be honest, we turn inwardly or we turn to experience, right? Well, someone else has experienced and this is how they handle it or this is how I handle it. Listen, here's where Peter turns in the moment of confusion to bring clarity literally to thousands of people. He turns back in his Bible and says, listen, Joel chapter 2 in the Old Testament, you can see this is exactly what God said would happen. This is exactly how God said it would play out. And here's what I want us to understand about the person, God the Holy Spirit, and how it works in Scripture, how he works in Scripture. There's two ways primarily. I want you to see this. That in Scripture first, we see that the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired the Bible. He's the one who inspired human authors to write the pages of Scripture. Joel, the prophet Joel, was inspired by the Holy Spirit to pen chapter 2, this prophecy that's taking place in Acts chapter 2. Not only did the Holy Spirit inspire scripture, now here's what we have to understand is that the Holy Spirit illuminates the scripture. That God the Holy Spirit gives us eyes to see and to understand what the pages of scripture actually are saying. The reason that we understand and the reason that Peter is articulating Joel chapter 2 is because the Holy Spirit has illuminated his eyes to stand in front of people and preach and proclaim that what was said literally 900 years prior to this moment at Pentecost is happening now exactly how God said it would. Right? So what he's doing is he's using the Bible to interpret the experience before them. Think about that. He's using the Bible to interpret the experience, not the other way around. Not using experience to interpret the Bible. That is how we must live, and frankly, that is how we must preach as the people of God. We must use the Bible to interpret our experiences and not get it confused. We live in a very confused society and world. Anybody else agree with that? Right? There are things. I, I live a very confused life. And I don't want to put my experiences as the interpretive lens on the pages of Scripture. I want Scripture to interpret my experiences and clarify the confusion that's in my life and in society and culture all around me. Because listen to me, what we ultimately need as the people of God, and this is what Peter is saying, we need God to speak from his perspective on what's reality, what's important, and what's from him. And Peter's doing this. He's pointing back to Joel chapter 2 to say, listen, this moment of Pentecost, this moment of the Holy Spirit coming, look at it in verse 21. You can put that on the screen behind me, Keith. It says, actually verse 20, real quick. It says, before the day of the Lord comes. What is is the day of the Lord? You'll see another translation of this, and it says, like, the final days, right? Right? The last days. Have you, how many of you heard people say, we are in the last days? We are in the last days. You've heard, you've heard, I know if you've turned on your TV to any televangelist, you've heard about the last days, all right? Well, here, Peter, this preacher, right, at the beginning of the church is talking about the last days, the final days of the Lord. What in the world are the last days? Little, 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 uh, little side note here. Yes, we are living in the last days. Even since Peter's Sermon here, we have been living in the last days, and so here's what the last days mean, right? And this is going to clarify some of the the poor sermons you have heard. The last days simply point to this fact of God's final act of salvation has begun taking place that his redemptive plan has set into motion, and the final thing that will take place is Jesus coming back. So the last days that we're in are after the de- life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but we haven't arrived where Jesus has come back yet, right? So we're in the final days. You say, like, how long? I don't know. I don't know how long we are to be in that period of time, right? But we are to live and to act and orchestrate our lives as if the Lord could come back at any moment. That's how we live. That's what Peter is proclaiming here. Listen. How you know you're in the last days? Because the Spirit is going to be poured out, put in you and me as believers in Jesus Christ. But look at the great joy of verse 21. He says, and it shall come to pass. Like in the last days, in those final days. Here's what you're going to see. Here's what we're going to see. That everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Praise God. Because what happens at that final coming of Jesus is the judgment of God, right? Where he finally, and once and for all, judges the living and the dead, the Bible says, right? This crazy scene. But Peter gives them hope and goes, listen, for those who call upon the Lord will be what? Saved, right? It's, it's, it's behind me, I hope. Right? Saved. Saved from what? The judgment of God. How are we Saved. Remember, Peter is preaching this. Peter is proclaiming this to thousands of people. They're going to have these questions. They're still wondering what Pentecost at. What just happened at Pentecost in the upper room? And here is where Peter, he totally clarifies Joel chapter 2. Look at it, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. How are you saved? How are you saved in the last days? How are you saved from the judgment of God? Here's how. Jesus of Nazareth a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, if you have your Bible, underline that. As you yourselves know, Peter is not telling them anything new. He's telling them all things that they have seen and witnessed, even with with maybe not even just their eyes, but probably with their ears and stories about Jesus. He says, this Jesus delivered up According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, and here, notice what Peter's doing. He's going back to the Bible. Psalm 16. I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. All right? So pause right here. Verse 23, right? Listen, we love the word of God, so you having it open on your lap is really important, or you can see it behind me this jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of god like what peter's saying here is what we see all over the pages of scripture that the pages of scripture always from genesis to revelation have pointed to the redemptive plan of our god fulfilled in jesus christ that that was god's plan that was not that Jesus came here and some, some, some rough guys roughed him up and pinned him to a cross. God's going, no, it was my plan that he died for the sins of the world. The definite plan of God. But wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Read the rest of verse 23. He says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So how do you have, in one hand, the definite plan of God before the foundations of the earth, And in the other hand, Peter, without flinching or blinking, going, it was done by men in their hands. It was done by them. You see, what we have here is God and the word of God teaching his sovereignty and free will hand in hand without blinking. I love it. It's where you see the plan of God being executed and carried out by the decisions of lawless men. Right And God has no problem with that, nor should we. We have to stretch our theological rubber band, if you will, around both of those things. The seeing that God is totally and absolutely in sovereign control over everything and that Jesus was executed by lawless men at their hands. We have no problem with it because Peter has no problem with it right here. And so that's how we reason and we reckon with that. And then we see him quote Psalm 16. And then Peter again, look at this, in verse 34 goes back to David in Psalm 110. He says, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So what is taking place here in this section? Peter goes from a rational argument in his sermon to a biblical argument using Joel chapter 2 to interpret it. Then notice he quickly gets to who? Jesus. 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 And let me tell you, every sermon worth its salt and worth you listening to gets to Jesus quickly. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of everything. Joel chapter 2, the salvation that is coming at the end of there comes by who? Jesus Christ. What's, what uh, Peter is talking about here in Psalm 16, that is talking about who? Not David. Psalm 110, verse 1, the other passage, that's not talking about David. That is talking about Jesus Christ, and that is what Peter is saying. And so much of Christian preaching, and I I struggle to call it Christian preaching, is merely, it's been merely made to be kind of these biblical moral principles, right? This is how we do life. You need to understand that the Bible, the Word of God, is not a book full of principles to live by. The book, the Bible, the whole story is about living for a person. It is about Jesus. It's how we orchestrate our lives around the person of Jesus Christ. And that's what Peter's saying. Listen, this man who you saw, this man who you crucified, that's the Savior of the world. That Joel 2 is fulfilled in and through him. That there is a singular baseline in our entire Bible that the Bible is not a thousand different stories. The Bible is one story. And I've said it already, that it is the story of God's redemptive plan playing out in the person and work of Jesus Christ, known to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what Peter's laying forth at this Sermon of Pentecost. Jesus, Jesus Jesus. The Holy Spirit has come so that you might know who? Jesus. The role, the primary role of the Holy Spirit is what? To illuminate Jesus and make him known to all people that they might be saved. In verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, who's him? Jesus, both Lord and Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Whoa. Again, I think we can come to the pages of Scripture so familiar with them that we don't actually understand what Peter just said to thousands and thousands of people. That the content and purpose and flow to Peter's sermon is very spirit-led. That he's taking them from Joel chapter 2 To the person and work of Jesus seen illuminated in the Old Testament, in the Psalms. Now to going, listen, you're stirred up by the greatness of, of Jesus. You're stirred up by his grace and his mercy. You're stirred up the fact that you saw and witnessed all proving that Jesus Christ is Lord and God. He's God. He's exactly who he said he was. But then he indicts every single person. He says, this Jesus whom you crucified. And this is what I call in the sermon the confrontation. Right? I mean, Peter, did you have to go there so quickly? Right? Did you have to indict them so soon, right, that they were the ones? Wait, wait, wait. You said back in, in the verses in, in 23 that it was other people, that it was lawless men, right? It was those people acting as agents to, to the rest of the crowd. But Peter goes, no, 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 no. You're guilty. And Peter goes, I'm guilty of crucifying Jesus. You see, this is no doubt a punch in the stomach to the crowd. Wait, wait, I, I put him on the tree? I'm guilty for his death? You see, the gospel cannot be merely informational. And what I mean by that is the good news of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. That that is the hope of salvation for every one of us, not our works. Has to move from being merely informational to actually being a message that is transforming. It actually has to be a message that we receive. This fact that we crucify Jesus has to be a confrontation we all face. We all come face to face that it was our sin, your sin, my sin, that put Jesus on a tree, that he had to die for our sin. That's what Peter is saying. And that can't be mere intellectual knowledge only. It has to be something that by the power of the Holy Spirit changes us, causes us to ask the next question from the crowd. Look at it. And now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, what's the question? Brothers, what shall we do? If that's true, if this is true about who Jesus is, if this is true about what he's done for us, how he lived, how he died, and how he rose again, and that I'm the one that's guilty of his death, what shall we do? A question we all have to come to. A question we all come to when the gospel moves from merely being informational to actually being transformational in our lives. The gospel preaching and proclamation like we see from Peter here is that it proclaims Jesus in his greatness and his glory while simultaneously revealing to us where our heart, where our thoughts are, Our words, our actions, our attitudes are misaligned in the person and work of Jesus revealed in the Bible. Now look at me. Do you realize, like the hearers in Jerusalem at Pentecost, that you're guilty of killing Jesus? That it's because of your sin and my sin that he bore the cross for our guilt and shame? And if that is true, the question must follow, what are we to do about it? You see, the Holy Spirit moving in power and transformation calls us always to deal with the discrepancy that exists between the greatness of Jesus, the glory of Jesus revealed in Psalm 110 and Psalm 16 and from Peter's eloquent sermon, the greatness and glory of Jesus and the discrepancy that you and I live with every day. Like, and you know there's a discrepancy there, right? Between what we believe and profess and how we live. See, one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of sin. It's to show, to illuminate that margin and that gap in our lives between what God has called us to in Jesus versus where we're actually living. And one of the greatest fears I have as a Christ follower and also as a pastor is that I just become comfortable and okay with that gap. I just become okay with that discrepancy. And the reality is, I typically numb that discrepancy between what Jesus has called me to and what Jesus has given me in His grace and mercy. I usually numb it with religious activity. I usually numb it by just doing more good, whatever that is. I numb it by, by going through the motions. Disconnected from my heart. Listen, the only thing that answers that discrepancy is the presence of God, is the presence of the Holy Spirit illuminating us and us actually responding how Peter tells these folks to respond. We haven't even got to the response yet. What do I do? So my fear as a church is we'll never get to that question. What do we mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? We'll ask that a lot, and that's an intellectual question. Then there's a response question. What do I do? How do I respond to the great grace of Jesus Christ? How do I respond to the knowledge of my sin? Listen, listen. Sin is not what we do. Sin is who we are. Right? What we do in sinning is a result of our nature. Okay? We need a healing. We need a salvation from our nature. We need a new heart. We need a new condition, right? We don't need to modify jacked up behavior just to be good. We need a whole rehaul, right? We need a transformation from the inside out. And that's what Peter's telling to these thousands of people. It's what he's telling to us through the word of God today at the Parks Church. What do I do? What do I do with this reality? What do I do with this truth? Verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins that you and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Me! Who is far off, me, who is dead in my sin, that is a gift for me. However far you think you are away from God or however close you think you are to God, apart from Jesus, you're far off. You're still dead in your sin. And Peter goes, this is a message for you. Verse 40, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. For those who received this, his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Pretty effective message probably, right? Pretty solid sermon. Listen, the point of this sermon in the word of God is meant to bring us with a decision. It's meant to bring us face to face with the reality of who Jesus is. It's meant to bring us face to face with the reality and the discrepancy in our lives versus the call of Christ upon us and to us. It's meant to be, for some of you, for the first time, a real offer of grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, some of you, what you know, you know religion, right? You know doing and you know duties. I'm not talking about obedience. Trying to achieve the right standing with God. You know that, listen, that will end in nothing more than a futile frustration from you. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. Let me be as clear as I can. That Jesus came as God, very God, lived, died, and rose again victorious as God so that you might have life. And what you're confronted with today is that you might accept that reality that apart from Jesus, you can't know God. That you would accept that you and I were the ones who put Jesus on a tree because it was our sins that he bore there. And listen, the same thing is true for us as believers. Those of you who, by the grace of God, have walked with the Lord year after year faithfully and faithfully. The call is still the same when we're confronted with the beauty and the grace of Jesus Christ. To ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate those areas of discrepancy and gap That we might live more faithfully for Jesus. That we might fall to our faces in repentance. Right? What is is repentance? Listen, repentance isn't a one-time thing, believer. Non-believer, it starts in one time. But it's not a one-time thing. Repentance or the work of repentance is the daily work of a believer. Wayne Grudem, who we love around here, author and scholar, he says this. Repentance is threefold. Repentance is understanding through the mind that you've transgressed or you've sinned against God. It's being remorseful mentally. Second, it's a condition of the heart. It's regretting your sin and turning away from your sin and having a desire to please Jesus. But third, it's also a decision of the will, Grudem says. And I love this. He says, if I'm going in this direction, I'm going to stop and I'm going to turn back. And what he means by this direction is a direction opposite of the way of God. How do you know the way of God? The Bible. He says, if I'm going in that direction, I'm going to decide by decision of will to turn away from sin and turn towards Jesus. And the Bible also tells us this, that repentance and faith They're a gift from God. That this process is only a process that comes because God has given you the gift of his son through the power of his Holy Spirit. That he's changed your mind. He's changed the condition of your heart to actually see and sense the things of God. And then he has changed your will, meaning your appetite that you no longer hunger for the things of this earth, but you hunger for the things of God. That's true repentance. That's the process we all walk through. And that's the process that Peter calls these people to for the first time. You say, well, he calls them also to one more thing. Baptism. Baptism. He says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Yeah. There is a physical action. There is a proclamation action that Peter is talking to. He's talking to them about that when you receive Christ and the forgiveness of sins comes to you, you're part of this new community. And the way that you're brought into this new community is by being water baptized is by proclaiming publicly that I am with Jesus and he is with me. That it is not just merely a symbol. It is a signpost pointing to the goodness and grace of Jesus Christ that we must proclaim. Repent. Be baptized. Be full of the Holy Spirit. And then what we're going to talk about at the end of chapter 2 coming up, that you're part of a new community. I can't wait for that. Let us pray, church. God, I thank you for your word. Your word that confronts us by the power of your Holy Spirit in the most beautiful and gracious way your word that calls us from sin and darkness and shame into your light through Jesus. Lord, I pray for those people in here who don't know you, who have maybe a, a character of you, who have maybe a, an unbiblical version of you given handed down in religious tradition God I pray that today that they might see you clearly through Peter's sermon in Acts 2 that they might see you're a God who is full of promise and faithfulness full of love who would send his son to die for us because of us and that your call of salvation is for us to trust in him God I pray that we might confess our sin that we might repent That you would become more than just an intellectual exercise for us as a church. But you would be our very God who transforms the nature of our lives. Who calls us away from the things that are killing us and deteriorating us. And you're calling us to the things that bring us life and bring us joy. Holy Spirit, move even in these moments. God, for those of us in here who are believers, we're asking that by your Spirit you might show us the discrepancies in our lives. The areas where we, God, we frankly don't even want your involvement. The areas of our lives that we're holding, maybe even in secret, that you're calling and bringing into the light. God, we ask for your forgiveness, that you would forgive us of those areas, that we would run to you, we would come to you, that our hearts would be cut to the core. God, we are not content with merely going through the motions. We want to know you and see you and sense you in our lives in a real way. Wake us up from our slumber. Wake up the parks Church for your glory. Wake up my heart to the beauty and the grace of your son Jesus Christ. Wake us up as a community to the goodness of the gospel. God, I pray as we walk from these doors through the power of your Holy Spirit that you might shape and change, that you might transform us in our families, in our careers, in our parenting, in our relationships. You might change our speech and our thought life. That you might calm our angst and our anxieties that you might silence the enemy, his voice in our ears, that you might help us fight our flesh that can be so strong. God, we are weak. We are fragile apart from your spirit alive in us. Oh God, but we are a confident people that your spirit is in us and you have given us all the power we need through him to accomplish every purpose you have called us to. For your glory, God, I thank you for our time together in your word. I thank you for our time together as a community of faith. May we go for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.